All right, as you open your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, Pastor Bruce is going to conclude his message series about not wasting our lives. This morning, the message is titled, A Life That Counts, looking at the example of Paul. Again, we're in 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. God, as your word speaks to us this morning, God, would you open our hearts, God, would you challenge us that the life we may not live here that we won't one day look back and say that we've wasted it. God, will be able to say that we have run the race and we have kept the faith. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we want to conclude our, our message series that we've been in for the last few weeks. A series we've been calling, Don't Waste Your Life. How many have ever taken time to uh, walk through a graveyard, either by accident or on purpose. Raise your hand. Yeah. Now, and how many felt like the, the, your walk through the graveyard was just a little on the eerie side? Anybody? Okay, yeah, a few. Uh, I, I'm sure most everybody here has, has walked through a graveyard. It, you know, perhaps you've even been to a graveside service um, uh, with the death of a loved one, and uh, maybe you've walked around. I always find it interesting, though, to read uh, the tombstones. In fact, uh, my, my sister-in-law, Donna, uh, she lives on five acres not too far from here. Right across from her house is a uh, really old, old and small cemetery. And there's been a few times where the boys and I have uh, gone across the street, and we've kind of just walked through the graveyard there, and you, and you kind of look at the, the grave markers, the, the tombstones, if you will, and you look at the dates and, and, and what's on it. I find that really interesting to see what loved ones, family and friends, have put uh, what they think of their loved one and what they put on the, the tombstone. In fact, I want to share with you, uh, here are some actual epitaphs of some famous and not-so-famous people. Uh, how many are familiar with Mel Blanc? It should be coming up on the screen. His epitaph says, that's all, folks. A man of a thousand voices, beloved husband and father. And then Rodney Dangerfield, there goes the neighborhood. That's his epitaph. Uh, Joan Hackett, the ne- next slide here, will say, it, her epitaph simply says, go away, I'm asleep. I'm asleep. <laughs> and then B.P. Roberts says, I told you I was sick. He was right on that, wasn't he? Uh, this person, the next one, is unknown, and the epitaph is, faults I may have, being wrong is not one of them. <laughs> Wives, how many have that for your husband? Don't raise your hand. Uh, and then Jonathan Blake, I, I found this kind of interesting. His epitaph says, here lies the body of Jonathan Blake, stepped on the gas instead of the brake. <laughs> and then Lester Moore, here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a forty-four. No less, no more. <laughs> Pretty good. And then this next one, Ezekiel Pease. Yes, that's his name, Ezekiel Pease. It says Pease is not here, only his pod. 
he shelled out his peas and went to his God. <laughs> and then the next one, uh, I, I just thought this was funny. I, it's just, I just thought it was funny. I had to share that one with you. <laughs> well, we began this whole series a few weeks ago with this question. When you look in the rear view mirror of your life, what will you say? Will, will you say, I've wasted it, or will you say, I made it count? You know, every one of us here this morning, obviously, we're alive. Hopefully, we're alive today. And, and we're living life, and, and most of you will live at least to be 75 years of age, somewhere around that mark, and some of us will live a little less than that. And then at the end of our life, we will look back on how we have lived our life. And the question is, what will we see when we look back? Will we see a life that counted, or will we see a life that was wasted? And one way to think about this question is to take a, what we could call a tombstone view of my life. In fact, the next slide, look at it. A tombstone view of my life. If you were to write your own epitaph on the tombstone, what would it say? What would it say if you were to write it based on the life that you lived up to this point today? In preparing for this message, I was doing some searching on the internet, and I came across this website. It's called tombstonebuilder.com. And on this website, you can actually make your very own custom tombstone, including how you want to be remembered by your family and friends. At the Fiesta Bowl in January of 2003, just before his team left the locker room to play for the national championship of college football, Jim Trussell, the head coach of the Ohio State Buckeyes, gathered his team for one final talk. After going over the game plan, he asked his team one simple question. How do you want to be remembered? It must have worked because when the game was over, the Buckeyes had pulled off one of the greatest upsets in college football history, defeating the Miami Hurricanes and in the process winning the national championship. But that question hangs in the air for you and I this morning. How do you want to be remembered? What would you write on your tombstone? Well, here's the Apostle Paul's answer to that question. The Apostle Paul, writing from a Roman jail, with the certain knowledge that he would soon be dead, he looked back on his journey with Christ, and then he looked forward to what would happen after he died. And then he wrote his own epitaph in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. It's the triumphant epitaph of a life that counted. Look again at what he says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, I don't know about you, but that's how I want to be remembered. I mean, that's what I want to be able to say when I'm at the end, near my death, at the end of my life, and I'm looking back now over my life. I hope I can say the same thing as the Apostle Paul. But let me tell you, a life that counts doesn't happen by accident, does it? It just doesn't magically happen all of a sudden. We don't just live 70 years, look back and say, yeah, I made it count. 
We have to be intentional about it. So what does it take to live a life that really counts? And I'm not talking about counts in the eyes of the world. I'm not talking about it counts in, in, what the, in the accumulation of stuff, as we saw in the first message. But I'm talking about a life that counts in the eyes of God. The Creator, the One we are held accountable to. Well, I think Paul gives us some insight in his own epitaph. And in the previous verse and in the verse afterwards, I think he gives us some clues as to what it means, what it takes to live this life that counts. So let's look at it. A life that counts, number one, first of all, it keeps the faith. A life that counts keeps the faith. But what does it mean to keep the faith? What's Paul talking about here? Well, if you go back again to verse 7, Paul uses three distinct phrases here to describe the kind of life that he lived. He says, first of all, I have fought this good fight, I have finished this race, and I have kept the faith. And I personally think Paul is basically saying the same thing with all three phrases here. In fact, I don't think we should necessarily view fighting the fight and finishing the race as somewhat totally different from what he says at the end here, I have kept the faith. In fact, I think those two phrases are simply pictures of what Paul used to describe what is involved in keeping the faith. Now, why do I think this? Because when Paul commanded Timothy, who he's writing to in this book, when he commanded Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, to fight the good fight, he called it the fight of faith. So when Paul uses the very same phrase now, at the end of his life, followed by the phrase, I have kept the faith, we have some good reason to believe that Paul meant, I have fought the good fight of faith. We can almost say it this way. I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race of faith. I have kept the faith to then summarize it all. And so the two pictures of a fight and a race simply illustrate what is involved in keeping the faith now. But before we look at these two pictures, we need to answer a rather important question. And that question, well, what is the faith we are keeping? What is the faith that Paul kept? Well, the faith is not faith in ourselves. It's not faith in any mere human being. It is faith in Jesus Christ and his word. It's the gospel. It's the core right here of faith in Jesus Christ and his word. In 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul said to Timothy that the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to have faith now in Christ Jesus? What does it mean to have faith in anybody, in somebody? Well, it means you, one, you, you take them at their word, right? If you have faith in another individual, if you have faith in your spouse, you take them at their word. You count on them to live up to what they say. You trust their counsel. You have confidence in their promises. If they made you a promise, you have faith that they're going to keep the promise. So when Paul said, listen, I have kept the faith, 
he meant, or at least part of what he meant, is I have kept on taking Christ at his word. I have kept on counting on what he said. I have kept on trusting his counsel found in his word. I have kept on having confidence in his promises. This means faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen, it's also faith in his word. You can't separate the two. Saving faith is a a joining of ourselves to Christ as one who is wholly trustworthy, as one who is infinite integrity and infinite power, and therefore who will do all that he said he would do. And you say, well, why is this such a big deal, Bruce? I mean, why are you making a big deal about this? Because I believe so much of people's faith today is really no faith at all. And here's why I say that. Because if we say that we have confidence in Christ's death for our salvation, for our eternal life, for the forgiveness of our sins, but we continually live as though much of what Christ has promised in his word is untrue, then are we really trusting Christ? Are we really keeping the faith, as Paul says? Let me give you this analogy. That comes from John Piper. He says, suppose your boss says to all his employees, hey, listen, employees, I will give you all a $250 bonus at the end of the year. And all the employees are like, wow, yeah, great, we get a $250 bonus. That was a whole lot more than the turkey we got last year for Christmas. So we're all jumping up and down, and we're shouting hallelujah at that. And then at the coffee break, everyone discusses whether it's true or not. And you pipe up and you say, oh, I believe he will do it. I believe he's going to pay out that bonus of 250 bucks. And then later he comes back to you the next day and he says, listen, not only that, but everyone who comes into work one half hour early, the rest of the year, I'll make it worth your time. You won't regret it. But at coffee break now, everybody's talking about that. And you say, oh, man, I don't know. I don't think he could make it my, worth my while. I don't think he'll really pay that out. How can he make it worth my while? I don't know about that. And so you don't come in early. You come in at 8 o'clock as normal. So if we were to ask the question now, do you have faith in your boss? What is the real answer? The answer is no. You have no faith in your boss. The fact that you believe he's going to pay out that bonus at the end of the year is not based on your confidence in his integrity and power. It is based on the fact that it doesn't cost you anything to believe it. And on the fact that he will probably pay whether he is reliable or not because of tax purposes for his own benefit. This is the very situation that many professing Christians find themselves in today. They really believe that Christ will pay them the bonus of, quote, eternal life, but they live as if his counsel, as if the word of God is unwise. They live as if his promises are unreliable. Is that really keeping the faith? Listen, faith in Jesus Christ is also faith in his word. 
Because it is faith in his integrity, in the person of Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, and in the power as the Son of God. And so when Paul says, listen, I have kept the faith, he means he has kept on trusting Christ and his word through thick and thin. We could think of it this way. We have stated from the very beginning of the series that a life, the unwasted life, the essence of it is living in a way that magnifies Christ. How can we magnify Christ if we're not keeping the faith in Christ? It's an impossibility. Now, with this in mind, we can now ask the question, well, how is keeping the faith like a fight, and how is it like a race? These two pictures that Paul gives for us. Well, when you begin to think about a fight and a race, I think, number one, keeping the faith then becomes hard. It's hard. Keeping the faith is hard. Just think about a boxer. How many like to watch boxing? It's not as big a sport nowadays. In the 70s, 60s and 70s, it was huge. How many, and then you think about a runner. Boxers get hit in the face. Boxers get punched in the gut. Runners push themselves to the limit and both train for very long hours. Therefore, keeping the faith, listen, is hard. It involves discomfort, stress, and pain. In fact, this Greek word for fight that Paul uses is the same word which we get our word, English word, agony from. And we all know what agony means. It means to exert, to labor fervently with persistent effort, even to the point of exhaustion. Just think about some of the words that Paul used to describe his own life. He uses words like trouble, distress, tribulation, trials, hardships. In fact, you can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and Paul described the Christian life as hard when he wrote, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. In much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. So when you step back from it, we could say it this way. We could summarize it this way. Keeping the faith, then, is kind of like running a super marathon in the Himalayas. Keeping the faith in is kind of like fighting a 15-round boxing match with Muhammad Ali. It's hard. But how do we square this with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30? Do you remember his words there? Let me read them to you. Listen to what they say. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So if you yoke up with Jesus, it's easy. But how can it be easy and hard at the same time? Well, I think the answer is that the thing required by God is easy. But the condition of the human heart is what makes it hard. 
Think about that for a moment. What could be easier than faith? Jesus told his disciples, all it takes is the faith of a child. The faith of a mustard seed. What could be easier than faith? I mean, what could be easier than to stop trying to work our way to heaven and simply rest in the grace of God in the power of Christ? I mean, what could be easier than trusting God to make us secure and happy rather than pursuing the things of this world to make us happy and secure? And yet, all that assumes that our hearts are willing. But we all know what? They're not. And that's just the problem. That's the tension. That's the problem we have within us. Until God's Spirit blows all the unbelief out of our hearts, there remains a tendency in all of us to overcome the obstacles to our satisfaction in life, to our happiness, by ourselves, apart from God. And as long as this tendency remains, oh man, keeping the faith will be a struggle. And to the degree that this proud tendency is strong in our heart, to that degree, keeping the faith is hard and not easy. So when Paul says that keeping the faith is like a fight, it's like a race, I think what he's doing, he's reminding us, when now that he's at the end of his life, and he's looking back on it, he says, listen, I have done this, but it wasn't easy. It was like a race. It was like a fight. And in that picture there, those two pictures, he's given us a little clue. He's reminding us here that there remains in all of us enough of this old nature to make keeping the faith, like Paul did, well, a rather hard struggle. See, it's not always easy to trust Christ. Continually. Because there remains in us this old tendency to trust ourselves instead. To lean on our own understanding and to seek our own glory. Listen, is it always easy to trust Christ in our lives in every situation and circumstance? Absolutely not. I mean, I can't help but think of Ralph and Sherry. And I know there's many like them, but they're part of my small group here. And let me tell you, Ralph lost his job in February. And so I, it's our group, man, we've been praying for Ralph week after week. Lord, provide Ralph another job. Provide a job, provide a job. And, you know, and it was funny. I talked to Ralph, have lunch with him, and, he, he, and I'd say, Ralph, how's it going? How's it going? Well, you know, I had an interview. It hasn't gone anywhere. But, and he'd always say, but the Lord's going to provide. Lord will provide a job. I'd walk away going, man, he's got more faith than me. And then I ask, well, how's your wife doing with all this? Well, you know, she's, can I share, Sherry? You know, as a wife, hey, listen, you know, security's a big deal for women. It's, it was a, it's not always easy to trust Christ for eight months without a job. It's a struggle. It's part of the Christian life. You take your circumstances in life. 
You're part of a marriage just blowing up. Maybe you've lost your job like Ralph. Maybe you're dealing with caretaking of your, of your parents as they grow in age. You're dealing with health issues yourself. Whatever the case may be, you're dealing with children that have just gone haywire. What, it don't matter. Keeping the faith, to keep on trusting Christ in his word through thick and thin is not always easy. It's a struggle to do so. Why? Because there's this old nature in us that makes it still like we want to trust in ourselves. Lord, I don't have a job. I got to do something. I got to fix it now. I got to fix my problem now. We want to lean on our own understanding. You name it. And so that is the first thing applied in the pictures of this fight and race, keeping the faith, taking Christ at his word and trusting his promise is hard as long as our old self-reliant nature rears its ugly head. I wish it was different. One day it will be. Won't it? When we, Christ comes and we return with him, it will be different. And we can all say, wow, great, hallelujah, awesome. Until then, it's a fight, and it's a race to the end, which brings us to our second point, implied especially in the image of the race. Keeping this faith requires endurance all the way to the end. Paul says, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Listen, you can run, how many have run a marathon? All right, some of you had, you know, my brother. How many are, you know, for Rachel House, which we, is a great organization, a ministry. Uh, they have three locations here in the Kansas City area. One in the Northland that we partnered up with, Rachel House Pregnancy Center. They, they basically help ladies who is focusing mainly on, on unwed mothers who get pregnant to help them um, through the process of not avoiding a, abortion and putting their child up for adoption. A great ministry. Um, anyways, Rachel House is to help raise money. They're doing this, this 5K run. Is it 5K, John? 5K run. I know John's running in it. My brother Todd. Are you running in it, Todd? And Kirk is running it, right? Is there anybody else running in this race? Oh, and, we, and Dara is running in it. Are you really? Oh, cool deal. And, but she runs cross country, so it don't count. <laughs> Let, let's, let's, let's picture Dara running this race and my brother Todd running <laughs> Who's, who's going to finish first there? <laughs> oh, I know. I, I, I love my brother. But anyways, let me tell you. Run, listen, I'm telling you what. You can run a five miles. You can run 20 miles in a marathon. But if you don't cross the finish line, you don't get the crown. Listen to me. If you quit in the middle, if you quit... At the three-quarter spot, if you don't cross the finish line, you don't get the crown. Now, you take that concept and apply it to our Christian life. And I want to read you some scriptures here. Listen to what the Word of God says. Matthew 10, Jesus warns his disciples and says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. 
Hebrews 3, 13 through 14 says, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure, so shall we also reign with Christ. Listen, keeping the faith requires endurance all the way to the end. You cannot get around that. Our problem is we think the Christian life ought to be easy, but it's not. It's hard, and it requires endurance to the end. And third thing illustrated, especially by this image of a fight, is keeping the faith has opponents. It has opponents who want to defeat us. The Christian life is a fight, Paul says. And let me tell you, if you sense no struggle in your life, to trust Christ more, especially during those times of circumstances like a job loss or health issues or your 401K just went down the drain, if you don't sense a struggle to trust Christ in those moments especially, listen, one of two things is either happen. It means either you are perfect and we all bow down to you, or you have already surrendered to the enemy. You say, well, who are our opponents? Who's the enemies here that are fighting against us, keeping the faith? Well, there are two main enemies of our faith in Christ. One is our sinful nature, as we already kind of talked about, and the other one is Satan. Now, you just think about that. Self and Satan. Two primary enemies who want to defeat us, and who are, would love nothing more to see us burn and give up and quit in keeping the faith. In fact, self and Satan try to pervert all of God's creation into idols by alluring us to simply trust more in ourselves and in the things of the world instead of putting that trust in God. Satan has one main target. That's our confidence in God. That's our confidence in his word. That we have everything we need in this life to finish the faith and to run the race. I said that backwards, didn't I? Keep the faith and run the race and fight the good fight. We have everything we need. Satan wants, if he can target and demolish our confidence in God, because 1 John 5, 4 says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. If Satan can destroy that, he has all he wants. And concerning our other enemy, our self, our old nature, our flesh, as Paul often calls it, listen to what Romans six eleven says, reckon it dead. Reckon it dead. And then Romans 8.13 says, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And of course, we have two great weapons. Isn't that awesome? Man, God hasn't left us without weapons to fight the enemies that we have. In this battle and struggle to keep the faith, we have these weapons of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. 
The Word of God is, 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 is what contains the promises, is what contains and tells us how to live, how to keep the faith. And then we have the Spirit of God within us, who is the moment we receive Christ, we are indwelt by the Spirit. And the Word of God and the Spirit of God always fight together. So if you want to live a life that counts, then keep the faith. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it requires endurance to the end. And we have opponents who want to defeat us, and that's why, number two, a life that counts anticipates the reward. It anticipates the reward. Look what Paul says in verse 8. He says, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul likens himself now to this Greek athlete who, having finished the race, he's looking up at the judge's stand and he's ready to receive his victory crown. Looking back on his life, Paul says, I have kept the faith. And now he's ready to receive his reward. It's a promised reward. That has motivated Paul to keep the faith through the years of struggle, to endure to the end instead of giving up. So what is this promised reward to Paul? Well, look at it. It's the victor's crown of righteousness. It's the victor's crown of righteousness. Now, Paul, it's interesting, he was not anticipating the crown of an athlete. Back then, in those days, the crown of an athlete was a wreath made of leaves of some sort. How long do you think that was going to last? Not very long. It was temporary. But oh, the crown of righteousness. It's eternal. Lasts forever. You say, well, why a crown of righteousness? And say, say a, a crown of glory. After all, the athletes in America, we all want glory, right? We want the crown of glory. You know, Kobe Bryant won the NBA World I mean, the basketball championship, holding up that big old basketball, the crown of glory. It's what we want. So why this crown of righteousness as the promised reward? Well, think about it. Righteousness. I mean, it's our greatest need as people who are sinners. Righteousness is the singular thing we cannot get on our own. We cannot do on our own. We cannot do for ourselves. So how do we get righteousness? Well, Paul says in Philippians 3, 9, not having a righteousness from my own that comes from the law, but that which is through Jesus Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. In other words, When we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, do you know what we receive? The righteousness of Christ. We've talked about that a little bit. The righteousness of Christ, it covers us. And now when God sees us, he doesn't see us as what? As this awful sinner. Our sins have been forgiven, both in the past, the present, and future. The righteousness of Christ covers us, and now God sees us as his children, as his sons and daughters. I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me. I have received his righteousness. It's something I can't get on my own. I can't earn on my own. I can't do for myself. Christ had to do it, and God had to declare it. 
And yet because of sin, which hangs on us like this old, ugly, dirty garment, we must still battle against unrighteousness. And it's only at the completion of that battle. What Paul says is like a race and a fight of keeping the faith that Christ's righteousness will be perfected in us when we receive the crown of righteousness from the Lord. Gordon Fee says it this way. Let me quote what he says. One receives the final crown of righteousness precisely because one has already received the righteousness of Christ. Have you received Christ's righteousness? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Are you secure in Christ and his righteousness covering you? And here's the really cool part. This crown of righteousness, man, Paul says it's not only reserved for him, but it's reserved for everyone who loves and longs for Christ appearing. In other words, his return. And the reason we long for Christ's return is why? Because we love him. And because we love Christ, we will keep the faith to the end. And if we keep the faith, we can anticipate this crown of righteousness as our eternal reward. The old nature of the battle is gone at that moment. Yay! But until then, it's what? It's a struggle. So a life that counts, keeps the faith, anticipates the reward. But Paul gives us one final piece of clue about living this life that counts. Number three, it presents the sacrifice. Go back to verse six and notice what Paul declares as he faces his death. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is hand. All right, we all understand that. We can move on now, right? What in the world is Paul talking about? Being poured out as a drink offering? What, I, 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 he pours himself out like punch, Gatorade? I mean, what's going on here? What in the world is he talking about? Well, take the phrase, the time of my departure is at hand. That's a little more we may understand that phrase. All he's talking about there is death is on the horizon. In fact, it's high noon. And my head's getting ready to go to the chopping block. My departure from this life is at hand. I'm getting ready to enter into the next life. But this other phrase, when Paul says he's being poured out like a drink offering, he is referring to an Old Testament ritual that accompanied the sacrifices. When the sacrifice was presented on the altar, the worshiper would sometimes pour a drink offering of wine upon the burning sacrifice which, of course, was really hot from the fire. And as the wine, as you can picture this, hit the burning coals, well, you know exactly what would happen. The drink offering would what? It would go up in steam, and it would disappear, and it would leave this sweet smell of aroma that would rise up from the burnt sacrifice. And from the drink offering being poured on it. And so this drink offering was a symbolic way of saying, I give all that I have to the Lord. This sacrifice that I offer is given as a symbol of my wholehearted commitment to God. Nothing is held back. And all that I have, listen, I gladly give it to God. Paul takes that picture, that image, and applies it to himself. Now, here's the question. In the same way, this is the sacrifice of a life that counts. Look at it in your notes. 
What is this sacrifice? What is it like? It's presenting your life as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Paul knew that his death was close at hand. And he's basically saying, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. I have given my life as a living sacrifice to the Lord. But notice that Paul is not talking about pouring himself out when he dies. Listen, he is already being poured out in the present tense, which means it's a continuous process. John MacArthur adds these words. He says, Paul saw his life, not his death, as his ultimate act of sacrifice to the Lord. He was a living sacrifice, not a dead one. Listen, that's why Paul could write what he did in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Most of you are familiar with that verse. It says, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you what? You present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or reasonable act of worship. Listen, I honestly believe that this, this living sacrifice of our life, is crucial to living a life that counts. Here's what we sometimes think. We, we get saved, and we'll commit our life to Christ, and we, th- we think it's just a one-time act. I've done that, did that, and then we go on living. And that's just a problem. We go on living our life, my life. This idea of presenting your life as a living sacrifice, it's not a one, it, it can be a one-time act, but it's a continuous process. It's ongoing. Paul, when he says, I'm already being poured out, he's referring to his whole life. Not just at the end of his death, although that is true too. He was offering his life. But he's looking back and says, I'm already being poured out, and now I'm pouring out the very last drop of my life. Why? Because he presented his life as a living sacrifice over and over, basically daily. It's an attitude in our hearts and minds that this life is not for me to live. This life is to give God glory. This life that God has given to me, my one and only life, is to make it count. And I do that by magnifying Christ. And any other way of living is simply a wasted life. As we think about Paul's life, you know, we could really write over his life two big words. No regrets. Oh, man. To live a life of no regrets. And yet every one of us here has regrets, don't we? I didn't say no sin. I didn't say no mistakes. But no regrets. Listen, Paul wasn't perfect. I don't want us to come away with that idea. In fact, Paul, do you realize he considered himself one awful sinner? I mean the chiefest of sinners. Before he became a believer, do you know what Paul did? 
Well, he only killed Christians. How many of you have done that? I didn't think anybody had. So the idea is not living a life of perfection. None of us can attain that. But listen, we can, we, we can live this life that counts by the grace of God. I love what George Eliot says. He says, it's never too late to be what you might have been. Someone else said, though no one can go back and make a brand new start, anyone can start now and make a brand new ending. See, beginning today, you can live a life with no regrets. Beginning today, you can come to the cross of Jesus Christ and you can receive the forgiveness of your past life. Maybe a life of regrets in the past, but beginning today, it's wiped clean, it's forgiven. And beginning today, you can live a life of no regrets. Not perfection. Not without sin. Not without mistakes. But you can live a life that counts. You don't have to live a wasted life. And it's all because of God's grace. It's all because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Christ's death on the cross, listen, is what makes possible our forgiveness of sin. It's what makes possible and provides the power to live the life that counts. And that's why we want to conclude this whole series and today by reflecting on Christ's sacrifice through communion. And so with your heads bowed, and your eyes closed, and as we come to our response time, Kirk is going to come, and he's going to sing. And as he does, this is our time to, to run to the cross. It's our time to, to do business with God before we come to the table, the Lord's table. And perhaps you're here this morning, and you've got some junk going on in your life. Listen, don't, don't, there's, the, the, the issue don't, is not to run from it, but to deal with it. And the place to deal with it is at the cross. So let me encourage you while Kirk sings to come to the cross, right where you're sitting, to pray and receive the grace of God through forgiveness. And then once you have examined your own heart, and, and while Kirk is still singing, we can stand And we can walk to one of the four tables throughout the auditorium to participate in communion. You can feel free to to take the bread, take the juice back to your seat. I would encourage you as you reflect on Christ's sacrifice, a great place to do that is to turn to the Old Testament and read Isaiah chapter 53, right where you're sitting. After you participate with the juice and, and bread or even before. So as Kirk sings, now's the time. You prepare a place my home in heaven and I'm idle in the meantime today revealed your grace 
this life you've given and I complain in the meantime Rocks cry out your name Mountains praise forevermore And I stutter In the meantime You give footsteps to the lame Spirit to the poor And I'm blind In the meantime A talent buried Only for safekeeping Wasted Saturday Hello Sunday The seeds unscattered Living water in me And all the while The soil is drying In the meantime Cry to all the lands Oh, reach the nations But I like it here In the meantime You hold the withered hand In restoration But I like it clean In the meantime A talent buried Only for safekeeping Wasted Saturday Hello Sunday Seeds unscattered Living water in me And all the while The soil is drying In the meantime Your shepherd stirred from sleep Leaving ten to find the one And I yawn In the meantime For this dirty crippled sheep You sacrificed your son He loves me In the meantime treasure buried I'll give all that I have even Saturday so maybe someday these seeds I scatter will drink your water set free from a world that's dying in the meantime